when Caligula says to Passianus Crispus, you know, have you had sex with your sister? This is keeps Passianus Crispus is quite a powerful figure. You know, has to think, you know, what he's going to say about this. Because if he says a kind of no, that might suggest that this was a bad thing to do. And people knew that Caligula had sex with his sisters. If he said yes, Caligula also might get irritated, you know, because he might say, well, that's actually having sex with my sister is all right for me because I'm emperor, but not for you lot. So what he says after he gives is not yet. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today I welcome back Peter Stothard to the show to talk about his new history of the Caesars. Set from the end of the reign of Augustus in 14 AD and spanning all the way to the end of the 1st century AD and the reign of Vespasian, Peter takes us right into the home of the Caesars, seen through the eyes of one family, the Vitellii. And as you heard there, in order to survive, they had to be quick-witted. We talk slavery, sex, Roman food, the gluttony of the Caesars, including Nero and Caligula, and how to survive in ancient Rome when many didn't, which is probably best demonstrated by the year of the four emperors when, in 68 AD, three came to a sticky end before Vespasian took over and Rome saw stability. Coming up next Saturday, I have the Trojan War, then James Holland joins me to talk the Second World War, and since it's the anniversary of Dunkirk, and James and I discussed that, the film club is Christopher Nolan's movie Dunkirk, which is available to Patreon subscribers. Yes, I'll be launching a Patreon where you can sign up and get bonus material. I'll be sending out an announcement next week on that, but you'll get bonus episodes and much, much more. Please do share and rate and review if you can. In the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking with Peter Stothard on A History of the Caesars. Peter Stothard, welcome back. Lovely to have you back on. Thank you. Great to see you again. Well, we're talking about another new book of yours, An Alternative History of the Caesars. And it, and I've been reading this and uh, I was just saying to you before we started recording that it, it is lots of fun to read. And it really is an alternative history as well. If This is not a dour, dry history of the Caesars, is it? No, it's the uh, history of the Caesars that the... Uh... Roman historians didn't really want you to see <laughs> because uh, it, it takes seriously the characters who many many who wrote about the, the, the period from Augustus to Nero didn't really want anyone to take take seriously. I mean, all the the newcomers to Roman society that were suddenly dominant in that time, which was obviously so gave such anxiety to the old aristocrats. So the fact that the the, the sort of politics had sort of moved indoors. It sort of instead of being run in the forum where they were very good and in the army and uh, you know and making big speeches and winning battles. This period was actually quite a peaceful peaceful time. There wasn't much expansion of the uh, empire and, and the sort of ordinary politics had been not exactly closed down, but had been made into a bit of a sort of stage play. So there's lots of sort of pretend politics going on out, outside, but the only real politics happened inside. And, and it was inside the, the Palatine, the house on the Palatine Hill that expanded over this period and sort of basically meant that sort of all traditional politics was behind closed doors. Well, this is a very interesting story, what went on behind these closed doors. The answer to your question is it was an extremely 
irritating, not surprisingly, to the people who were outside the, the doors and who were used to, were used to being inside. And of course, it gave power. Once you had a one-man rule, he ran it from his house. Was effectively what it was to start with, and always really. Um, and a whole new sort of pe- set of people became influential and powerful. So, you know, the, the, the slaves, the ex-slaves, the um, a lot of women who had no real power much before um, suddenly became very influential and, and powerful. So you've got a sort of domestic politics going on now. People can argue about how successful that was, but it was it wasn't very pleasing to the people who were used to running things and found suddenly that that, that they weren't. And my book, what this Palatine does, is is to instead of basically saying all these guys on the inside were just sort of thieves, wastrels, poisoners, con men, too uppity for their own good, it tries to look at the world of the Caesars from their point of view. You know how how dangerous it was for them and what strategies they had to adopt. Very familiar sort of strategies for us now in order to survive. Yeah, I, I was reading and I kept on thinking, you know, if I were in, in that unlikely position of having been an emperor, what would you do to, you know, presumably because you have that arc of the first century AD, which starts with the stable rule of Augustus and, you know, eventually does descend into a rather a chaotic time. But I was reading the book thinking, what would I do to maintain power without... It seems to be basically just don't piss anyone off. And that's not... It's easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And the first thing you have to do is to know who to trust. And, and, and that's one of the, um, you know, the, point, the points of, of, running, of running anything. I mean, you've got to sort of know who you can trust and who, and who you can't. And different emperors found different you know, solutions to this. I mean, some people... Tiberius sort of trusted a certain kind of people naturally, particularly people he'd served in, in the military with. So that was that was sort of a bit not so untraditional for a while. But Claudius, for instance, who was a, as you remember, was the sort of uh, suffered from a lot of disabilities. The only reason he was still alive when Caligula was uh, w- w- was murdered was because no one thought he was really up to it and could possibly be a threat to to, to anybody. And he spent most of his life it, with servants, effectively. He'd been, and, and teachers, and it, with sort of academics. He was like, so his, the people he trusted were all the people who looked after him and who had sort of taught him and who had been worked with on the history of the Etruscans. And so he, he was a, he found that the right people to trust, and they were very, very different from the ones that other people had found to trust. I mean, Nero, you know, eventually trusted the people he did the amateur theatre with, and, and, and Caligula liked the chariot racers. But the, the, underneath the kind of interesting detail of, of who you of who you trusted, and of course, they all unsuccessfully or otherwise tended to trust the, the, the women they were involved with at the time. You know, whatever the whatever the in individual instances, the key thing to understand it's a bit like a, I call it sort of the birth of modern bureaucracy, because one of the things that the Romans did have left to us is not just all that great literature and all the law and in the poetry and all the aqueducts, but they left behind something which some people might think is actually more pervasive in modern society and in the societies that followed. Than any aqueduct, which is the process of a top-down hierarchy of, of servants who were, in some ways, the first civil servants. You're getting the aqueduct built. 
Well, there we are, exactly, getting, yeah, getting it built, making sure it, uh, it's quite difficult building an aqueduct. You had to sort of make sure you've got the right architects and the right people to make sure it sort of uh, went down very slowly and not too quickly and you know, it didn't waste a lot of money. And you, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, and if you were good at that, you were extremely, extremely, extremely useful to the uh, to the emperor, who could call the aqueduct after himself, but otherwise probably didn't have too much to do with it. But, well, one thing that I loved uh, reading through the book, and it, and it took me back to my time at university when I was studying ancient history. I, I had a module, food and drink in the Mediterranean, which actually that my lecturer was appears in your bibliography, James Davidson, who wrote a very yeah. good book, Courtesans and Fish Cakes. Mm. But food features throughout, and it steadily. Because I always, I always thought when I was studying the ancient Romans is uh, particularly uh, the latter half of this century that they're, they're rather they get steadily more and more vulgar, and that's reflected in the food, isn't it? I mean, because Augustus starts off with this sort of classless food of figs and bread, but it descends, doesn't it? And they and then and they're getting far too carried away and behaving very unRoman like. Well, I think it's, it's a big difference. I think between what they said they were eating and indeed what they said they were doing and what they were, what they were actually doing. I mean, the point about food is that as we've sort of begun to notice a little bit in the sort of media agenda surrounding the cost of living crisis. I mean, you shouldn't really compare that with astonishing sort of ups and downs of famine in the ancient world. But the politics of food is very central. That we saw it before the French Revolution. You know, I mean, you could argue all sorts of ideas and what's going on and, and who believes this and who believes that. But if people are hungry, they're very different people from if they're not. And it's the, almost the first rule of being in charge of anything is that people shouldn't be hungry because if they are, you're in really dead trouble. So food and, and power were, were there together right at the beginning. I mean, the Roman Forum was a food market before it was a, a market in ideas and rhetoric. And, and uh, however irresponsible, an emperor might be if, if once you took your eye off that ball you were you, you were in trouble so that's one way in which the food was you know food was central to, to roman power but the other was a kind of was was a display of it because if if people and it's again still true we, we get a bit out of the habit of seeing it like this because we have food all the time you know in the shops it doesn't really change very much but you know food was available much scarcer at some times than, than at others and if you wanted to be popular you gave huge public banquets. Julius Caesar, you know, before the, the empire, gave huge, and there were outdoor banquets. And, you know, thousands of people sat down at tables in the streets, and they had a jolly good sort of halfway between lunch and supper, an all-afternoon job. And, you know, Caesar was famous and very popular because for the first time in history, he had four different wines on each table. So if ever you, if you are offered different different wines on different courses at a meal, or, or if you offered a choice of wines in a restaurant. <laughs> that all goes, but it was Julius Caesar who thought, oh, this is great, we can give the, these, give the people a choice. And uh, so that, but that was all visible. And it was, you know, everybody, you know, people did it, people enjoyed it, and they, people were very grateful to the returning generals who put on these shows. But again, once the empire kicked in, and once everything was on the Palatine, these, Big shows tended to go indoors, and once they're indoors, you could you could be a bit more political about it if you were a leader. So you could say, "I'm very simple, and I prefer eat nothing but leeks or nothing but you know, simple peasant food and simple figs," and and uh, try and improve the moral fibre of the country by reminding them that they had to go back to the old days. 
but you could also then you go turn around and go into a banquet where there's sort of you know ducks steamed with turnips and uh, uh, extraordinary uh, confections of you know in, in every movie about Rome there's always the moment you know where they bring out the roast dormouse you know <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and, yes and that's, you know, that was true they they did have the dormouse but they often wanted to show that that wasn't what they were doing so food then became a political weapon in a different way it was you know what you said about it was as important or if you could get away with it as what you actually did have you have you ever actually tried having a um a roman meal have you have you uh have you have you put that on ever i mean presumably the four different types of wine shapes stothard are uh, <laughs> a regular occurrence no, I must. Say, I have occasionally passed, passed passed sort of tourist restaurants where they where they sort of say, "Come in and uh, you know eat and drink like a Roman," and a, and a chap dressed as a gladiator or a centurion uh, is waiting is waiting outside. But I have, uh, I've never actually been tempted. Maybe I've been maybe I, maybe I've been too shy. I had a I had a teacher who had the, this was years ago. He had he'd, he'd somehow got his hands on an uh, amphora that had been brought up from the Mediterranean and all that was left was the residue of the wine and so him and a a few of his friends had added water you know to try and make it into right so he could say he he drank Roman wine uh, which he did Uh, it was revolting unfortunately but um uh, and obviously was no longer wine. the, The real interest there I think is that it was probably to us would have been revolting at the time what always fascinates me always does is is that for the Roman poets who wrote a lot about this, um, it was quite clear that there were different kinds of vintages. You know, some wine was very expensive and very valuable, and some and some wasn't. And some was good and some was bad. Some was cheap, and that they would sort of say, "Come for a cheap one," or you know, "I'm going to get out the very best one." You know, for, for, for this occasion. But we know that from, from the sense of vintages as we understand them, all these would have been totally disgusting. So you have to ask yourself. In terms of the sort of human priorities, was it more important? Was the snobbism of wine, if you like, the, the grading of it into different orders, did that predate the ability to make the wine worth grading? I mean, I'm sure there obviously was differences between certain kinds of ancient, ancient wines, but I, I mean, I just inclined to think that the sort of human desire, particularly when you're putting on meals, of saying, "Oh, this is absolutely marvelous!" You know, this is this is really expensive, and this comes from a long way away. It, it, it's a more basic instinct in relation to wine than the actual business of making good wine or bad wine. Absolutely, uh, th- that's a conversation that's very relevant today. It really is. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not a great connoisseur of wine, but I'm, I'm, I am. You start from sort of suspicion as to whether the the snobbism predates the the viticulture. Absolutely, yes, I'm a bit sceptical on that as well. Uh, now, I, I know you, you, we've briefly mentioned slaves and and ex slaves. I always am fascinated by slavery in the ancient world because I think we certainly need to sort of uh, differentiate it from the modern slavery. But was slavery, because I remember I was on holiday in um, Bermuda once and I made the mistake of saying, oh, slavery wasn't that bad. What I meant to say was slavery in the ancient world wasn't that bad. And, I, and that was obviously a ridiculous statement anyway. And I was young, so therefore stupid. But what was slavery like in ancient Rome? Because as you say, you know, you've got ex-slaves who who rise to quite prominent positions and 
it, it's not a sort of not necessarily a lifetime in serv in servitude or in slavery, is it? The experience of, of being an, a, a slave um, was very, very variable. On the whole, I think you were better off being a, a, a enslaved in Rome than you were in Greece. And it's always very irritating for those of us who study Roman history, because the, 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 the people who study Greek history tend to be extremely, very, very superior about how much more important and much more interesting and and, and, and better the Greeks were than the Romans. You know, the Greeks... But that's Russia. true, isn't it, Peter? Well, <laughs> well no. <laughs> well, it, it's highly... Very contested. I would, I would, I would contest it. <laughs> Every time you see, you know, a, a wonderful, beautiful bit of Roman sculpture, and they say, you know, based on a Greek original, you, I'm inclined to shout out, you know, okay, well, where is this Greek original? How do we know? How do we know? Well, of course, the Romans did copy lots, 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 lots of things, and they, but as, as far as, as slavery, is con slavery is concerned, you were certainly had more chance of being released if you were a slave in Rome than if you were a slave in Greece. I mean, the Greeks, um, the great slave markets of, of, of old Greece, of, of ancient Greece. Were, I mean, you, you, it was a one-way ticket, really. Whereas, just as the secret of Roman success was a degree of extending the franchise, if you like. I mean, the, the, the people often ask, you know, how did Rome get great? Well, before we entered this period that we're talking about now, that one of the one of the ways that they got great was they were much better at often not without a struggle, and and they had to sort of sometimes. Um, scratch their heads and fight and try not to do it. But in the end, they tended to extend the franchise to their own people further and to um, people in Italy and then to people throughout the, the empire. They were more open in that way than the than other empires have been. And that was, I think, one of the, the keys to, to the, the success of, of Rome. And that applied to slavery too. Now, that's not in any way to... Uh, make light of the absolute horror of um, of working as a slave in a Roman silver mine. To be fair, it was pretty vile working in the Roman silver mines, whether you had slave whether you had slavery or not, to right? But anyway, working as a as a slave in a Roman silver mine was was a pretty much a death sentence. However, there were there were many places, uh, including in domestic service where where it wasn't, and in many cases where you were able to um where slaves would, would get their freedom. And there's a lot of uh, I mean, in the book, some very interesting examples of that. There, you have, you have to sort of search for them. They're not that obvious because basically the, the people who wrote Roman history originally were not that interested. Uh, they're only interested when slaves got a bit uppity. They weren't interested in, 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 in anything else. But if you look, you can, you can find it. And uh, there's a, you know, quite a funny poem by Phaedrus, a, a poem who isn't much read, but it's a satirist, it's a Roman Aesop. And he describes a slave trying to attract Tiberius's attention and being very obsequious and doing all the right things in order that he might get freedom from Tiberius. And Tiberius eventually sort of saying, no, no, you have to do a lot better than that old chap if you're going to get freedom from me. I mean, it's not a particularly funny joke and, and Tiberius was, was famously not a very funny person, but it, it does show you the kind of strategies that the weak um, were allowed to, ex you know, to exercise in, in, under the Roman Empire, both to get their freedom, and then once that once they got their freedom, to um, advance in, as I say, what was the, the, the proto bureaucracy of, um, of power within the Palatine Palace on the Palatine Hill. I mean, it's not as if Rome was the only 
place practicing slavery either was it i mean it was it was common commonly accepted all over the ancient world and presumably would would, would rome have been a little bit more i mean enlightened's probably the wrong word but a different approach to slavery in that you could gain your freedom if you had played if that slave had played his cards a little bit better with tiberius this is um, very contested territory, and of course, you know, for some people, you know, the very existence of anything, you know, you can't say there's anything ever been good about being a slave, a slave anyway. I think when it comes to food, though, it is worth pointing out in the early period that if you were a slave in a big household and it, and it fell onto hard time, hard times, and there was a famine, you were more afraid of being chucked out, given your freedom, in which case you'd have nothing to eat, than you were. To, to say a slave. I mean, food did come first. And, and one of the things that slaves did get in hard times in Roman households was fed. Now, that again, um, once Rome became a more richer society, I suppose, um, you hear that argument rather, you know, rather less. And, and um, people searching for their freedom and, and getting freedom and advancing society was more. But it's, it's always worth remembering the, the, the days when slave meant really the lowest level in a household. And that could sometimes be better than not being in a household at all. Well, the family that sort of takes us through the whole period that you've written about, the, the Vitellii, they are uh, <laughs> quite a family, aren't they? There's one in particular who early on, I think, is on campaign with Germanicus. Yes. And there is a wonderful line in your book, which I made a note of. Um, what was it? Germanicus was oh god i wrote it his name suggested a knowledge of germany he did not have <laughs> yes, well, well, well that is uh, certainly true I, I, I you have to ask yourself how much the duke of sussex knows about sussex you know <laughs> uh, the um, it, 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 giving aristocrats names was not necessarily uh, didn't necessarily suggest that they uh, knew anything about yeah. the name that they that they, they got but yes now this family the, the, the vitellier were were a kind of a, a sort of outsider family so they weren't one of the old aristocrats of rome they came from just around naples but the uh, the founder really of the family was a sort of a clerk to Augustus. So he, they started in imperial service. And uh, his son, he had this son who became Lucius Vitellius, who became the sort of arch flatterer of the new era. So he, uh, as far as I could see, sort of wrote the rules. He set the sort of standards to how you had to behave in order to exist in this new world, which if you tried to behave like an old Roman, it was extremely dangerous and you get your head knocked, you get your um, head cut off. So Lucius was a, a to his enemies, which is most of the people who wrote about him, was an obsequious, fawning flatterer of, of the lowest lowest kind who went around kissing, being toadying to, to, to Messalina. When Caligula says uh, that he's talking to the moon, he, um, it's uh, Lucius Vitellius who who finds a wonderful formula for, uh, <laughs> for for both suggesting That's wonderful, he might be right, but he might not be. You know, right. it, it's all the businesses. Anybody who works in an office of any kind of bureaucracy knows <laughs> that, it, that the people who often get on are the people who are very good at this kind of at this kind of technique. And uh, Lucius Vitellius uh, became virtually a prime minister uh, of, of of Rome by being a master of this. And so when when Claudius went off to to conquer Britain, or at least to pretend to conquer Britain, Lucius Vitellius was left in charge of Rome. So so he was a, an interesting new character. 
of, of this new world. And then he had these two sons, um, the Aulus Vitellius, who the guy who did become emperor, who um, is, I suppose, the basic, the sort of starting point of the story, because we probably, if Aulus Vitellius hadn't become emperor, however briefly, we probably wouldn't be telling this story at all. But um, he was like a lot of the sort of second sons in corrupt environments. You know, he he had his father's, he didn't really have his father's skills, but he had his, a lot of his father's, he, he, had, he absorbed the appetites of the people around him. So he became essentially a, 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 a sluggard glutton who was famed only for being sort of totally useless and eating a lot. Now, probably a bit of a disappointment to his father, who was a bit more sophisticated, but but Aulus Italius was very good with Nero. You know, he, he, he went along and caroused around the streets, beating people up with Nero, which is what's the kind of person that Nero wanted. And he also, you know, and he was very good at being in, in the, doing chariot races with Caligula. And so he was, in, in, in some ways, that's the emperors changed. Uh, you might say degenerated. You could say that the people who served them had to adjust themselves to a different kind of uh, of emperor. And, and what I try and do in this in, in this book is to again to rather than be too judgmental about the you know how awful Caligula was or how awful Tiberius was, to try and look at it from the point of view of people like the Vitellii who had to, had to manage this. And since there's, I think these days there's an awful lot of far more people have got experience, even if they haven't really thought about it very much, of manoeuvring um, around, you know, tyrannical bosses or how you do this. It, it's worth looking at it from that point of view, just not saying that the emperor is a monster or the boss is a monster. But, you know, ha- what are the strategies that work for surviving until maybe the next guy comes along who might, you might, you might be better, you know? And, um, and, and the Vitellii were, were, were masters of this, but it turned out, it all worked out perhaps too much because... Vitellius has such a reputation, Aulus Vitellius, for being useless and no threat. Just really as Claudius had, you know, Claudius was not thought to be a threat, so he became emperor. Aulus Vitellius was not thought to be a threat. So when the guy who took over from Nero uh, was looking around for people to put in charge of armies who wouldn't threaten him, he lightened, he, he sort of lighted on this very unlikely figure of uh, Aulus Vitellius and said, oh, yes, you could be, could be governor of Germany. So this guy who, who had a load of debt, was only really interested in food, had, you know, was, was run out of town effectively by his debt, by his creditors, and, and ended up as in charge of Germany, where he continued to eat and drink and have a, have a good time perhaps drinking more beer than wine. So he, he was up there. But, and that would have been fine, except that his, some of the people in his court because you know he was everybody had their their little court as well as the emperor had their big court decided that that actually it would be very good for them if they could make Vitellius emperor. Vitellius never wanted to be emperor, but he had two guys working for him, as it were, who um, thought it'd be very good for them if he were. And and then the, the sort of second half of the book is the story uh, of, of how this um, basically this sluggard from a bureaucrat family became emperor because other, other people thought it was very useful to him, to them, if, if, if he did. It's always so interesting, particularly around this period, is you've got this, it's like you say, how, how these groups choose in a, a corrupt system, how you choose the leader. I mean, it's sort of seems to be done from purely selfish motives, but it's a hugely powerful position. I mean, you're appointing the emperor of Rome, but the motivations are, are all within this 
small, very small part um, part of the Roman Empire. Well, that, that was true for the period of the Caesars when, indeed, the, 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 the emperor, because the, the name of Caesar was so powerful and any relationship to Caesar and being the heir of Caesar, I mean, that's how Augustus became emperor in the first place, you know, because he had the, the wit when he was Octavian to see that if he was Caesar's heir, he would be the heir to Caesar's forces, Caesar's loyalty, Caesar's money, people prepared to do stuff for Caesar. And that sort of weakened throughout the period up between Augustus and Nero, but it certainly never went away. And there were still a lot of people loyal to, to, to Nero uh, at the end because he was Caesar. And indeed, when Aulus Vitellius became briefly emperor, he, he realized this and sort of tried to reinvent himself as a bit of a Nero. Because actually, being a Nero, we see Nero now as a sort of who would want to be like Nero, but actually Nero was Caesar, and Caesar was a, was the talismanic name for being for being you know, for being an emperor. And so at that point, for this period that I'm talking about, which is this Palatine period, um, the, the decisions were more or less made inside the palace. The, the, there was some soldiery involved because they had a, a group called the Praetorian Guard, who were the sort of soldiers who were there to protect the emperor. They were not very numerous, but they were very highly paid and the sort of an elite force, if you like. So it wasn't that there were no, there was no military involvement. There was some, clearly. But the bureaucrats, if you like, the, the, the courtiers had a lot of control and, and, and management. It was shared, you might say. Once Nero was dead, in this year of the four emperors that I described at the end of the book, when there were four emperors in one year, that then essentially armies effectively then became back in charge and it became a such a, a series of civil wars between different army groups with their sort of figurehead leaders and, and none of those leaders ever really succeeded in establishing enough authority over either their soldiers or the rest of, of Rome until Vespasian the last of the four emperors managed, managed to hold the whole thing together again. Yeah I mean I guess looking back now, I, I was, I, I suppose, tempted into thinking, well, Vespasian's the sort of steady hand you have at the end. Um, but that's only because I know that he reigns for, what, 10 odd years after. But why was he able to, to establish a power base, whereas so many before him hadn't? I think one has to be very careful about judging people who are failures. Vespasian managed to hold, managed to hold it together. But because he managed to hold it together, and in particular because he was succeeded by his son, which is really quite rare, um, he had got a very good reputation. Because if, if, you, if, if you're an emperor whose son succeeds you, your son, Titus, wanted to basically didn't want to, to diss Vespasian because Vespasian was the source of his authority. And that's why he was, uh, why he, he, he was emperor. So Vespasian gets a very good rap in, in, in history. If, however, you're taking over from someone who, who doesn't give you your legitimacy, like so Vespasian, so we, we, you know, taking over from Vitellius, or you, you've got every interest in rubbishing them um, it, because you want to establish not your link to the past, but your difference from, from the past. So although everything I've said about Vitellius, and I'm sure a lot of it is true. It's extraordinary sort of appetites for, for food and, and, and his sluggishness, and etc. Those are all the things that people said about him after he had after he had failed. 
And uh, although I'm not, I, I think it's substantially the case, I reckon, you know, it was certainly e exaggerated. And, and, you know, he was a, you could say if you were defending him that he was a, he was a glutton because he was a failure as emperor, rather than that he was a failure as emperor because he was a glutton. Because gluttony, like sort of sexual excess and all sorts, of, and, uh, were, were ways in which Romans abused each other. Food and sex were so important that, uh, and, and so basic. They were easy weapons to, to use against people you, you, you didn't like. And so I, I tried throughout this whole book to be, I mean, there's only so much sympathy you can have for these people who were not, that's what we would consider to be model citizens. But it is true that they've also, they have been trashed by their successors in, in a way which we have to sort of take account of in, in, in evaluating actually what they were like. Well, none more so than, I mean, you've mentioned the, the sexual importance of, of uh, sex in in um in that world and but and none more so than Caligula who yeah <laughs> I always don't know what to say about Caligula well what, what I try to say about Caligula is to look at look at Caligula from the point of view of people having to serve Caligula I mean Caligula obviously you know did a lot of um very ordinary things as, as, as emperor I mean a lot of being an emperor was either do you know responding sensibly to requests. There was no policy. The emperors did not have policy as we'd understand. They didn't have economic policy. They didn't really have foreign policy. What they did was react to, to events, react to letters that came to them, react to requests for stuff. And although we don't know, uh, you know all, all the details, Caligula, just like every emperor, would have spent quite a lot of the day Responding to you know requests, you know, shall I build this? Shall I do that? Shall I do this? And I'm sure a lot of the, and probably a lot of the answers you know that he gave were, were were some were good and some were bad. Some were sensible, some were stupid. But that was probably true of uh, of all of all of them. But he also, of course, had this bit had this problem, and everyone dealt with this differently, as we were saying, about how to keep power in the Palatine itself. Uh, and how to keep people on their toes, as, as you might in, in, in modern parlance. Now, so when he, when Caligula says to Passianus Crispus, you know, have you had sex with your sister? This is keeps Passianus Crispus, who's quite a powerful figure, you know, has to think, you know, what he's going to say about this. Because if he says a kind of no, that might suggest that this was a bad thing to do. And people knew that uh, Caligula had sex with his sisters. If he said yes, Caligula also might get irritated, you know, because he might say, well, that's actually having sex with my sister is all right for me because I'm emperor, but not for you lot. So what he says after he gives is not yet, which is and, and just and, and, and Lucius Vitellius, when asked, you know, by Caligula, um, I'm, I'm with the moon at the moment, you know, can you see her and me, me together? Lucius Vitellius thinks, and he says, well, because he has to work it out very quickly. If he, if he says yes, then... Caligula and, and Caligula is teasing, then Caligula can draw him in and say, well, how many other gods can you see and, and, and make a complete idiot of, of him and, and expose him as a charlatan. If he says no, he might, he might suggest, you know, that, 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 that he doesn't believe what the emperor is saying. So what he says is, ah, no, but that's because only gods can see other gods. So he's saying, well, I'm not a god. So, you're, so only gods can see other gods. So he, his methods of dealing with particular kinds of, whether it's mania or just 
that, or, or teasing, or because they don't know what it is. They don't know whether Caligula is absolutely mad, though towards the end, the general consensus did, did go crazy, as a lot of uh, rulers do. But in some respects, he might just have been trying to, you know, exercise his authority and trying to and, and trying to tease and humiliate and make sure and show everybody that he was on top and who was on who was in charge and who wasn't. And the people who were underneath didn't know that. And some of these people were very proud and you know came from big families and had been used to running Rome. And now they had to make calculations like this. And so different kind of people prospered. You know the Vitellii prospered because they were good at making calculations like that. And other people who perhaps were a bit more too proud or you know just weren't quick enough or could only think about different kinds of things um, ended up in uh, in trouble and dead yeah so if you if you could construct an aqueduct competently but were not silver-tongued enough to answer that in yeah. a clever way then you might come to a sticky end yeah and gluttony and the, the, one of the themes of the book is that, is that eating banqueting behavior at table and flattery sort of are intertwined in, in, in the power structure of the Palatine. They both obviously existed before. There have been flatterers before the Palatine, I mean, flatterers in the Republican period, just as there have been banqueting in, 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 in the Republican period. But in the Palatine period of the, of, of the Caesars, these two are, are pushed together in this small space, creating all these opportunities and uh, for tactical maneuvering, which kept the Roman Empire going over its, the period which is you know, still its most famous. Well, it's it's uh, it's wonderful talking about it. And Peter, thanks so much for coming on. I've really uh, it's been a lot of fun. The book is a lot of fun. I, I just um, love reading it. I, it should be it should be even Latin teachers should introduce this into schools. I had a teacher of Latin in a state school in Brighton. I, I'm going to recommend he introduces this to the class because it's one way to get people into the the period. It really is. Well, thank you. That was good. There'll be a few more sales in Brighton. Though. Yes, yes. I have to keep an eye on that. Every author needs sales in Brighton. Everywhere, in fact. But Brighton, yes. Indeed, indeed. Great to, great to talk to you, Ollie. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. The Trojan War is coming up next week. And then on the anniversary of Dunkirk, I talked with James Holland, Mr. Second World War. Plenty more great content upcoming. Next month is the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. So Gordon Corrigan returns. We've got royal controversy during World War II and the Troubles. So please do subscribe. But in the meantime, thank you and good night.